Thank you again so much, Ms. Mary. Appreciate your sitting at the piano like that Sunday after Sunday and providing us with uh, wonderful music to listen to and to sing along with. We greatly appreciate that. Well, we're glad you're here again this morning and grateful for each one who comes to fellowship with us and to participate in a, in a service where we seek to honor the Lord, to worship Him, to hold His Word up as something of great value because it is the source of life, it is life itself. So as we look to God's Word, let's look with uh Let's look, well, as, as one of the words we're going to be looking at here this morning in this passage in, in 1 Peter, we're going to look with intensity and with desire. I trust you'll, you'll have that kind of desire to, to hear his word. That song we were singing, I don't know the name of it, uh, that second one that uh, Brother Bob was leading us in, where it says e- even the, the saints, the believers, long to hear the story over again. But sometimes you wonder... <laughs> Do we really long to hear it again, or just are we bored with it? Sunday after Sunday, it seems we come hear the same thing, same thing. But it ought to be something that we we truly are passionate about, and it ought to stir our souls. And I trust that that's what God's word will do for you today—that it'll stir your soul down to the very depths of of your being, because it is it is your life. And that's why we're here or the life that Jesus Christ has brought to us. We're looking at 1 Peter chapter 2, and we've been excuse me, working our way through this book, passage by passage, verse by verse, looking at the message that Peter um, has sent to these um, scattered pilgrims located in what we would know as modern-day Turkey, but which God's Spirit directed him to write and has been preserved by God for us. It's included in, in, in the Bible. It's included in the Word. It's a part of the canon of Scripture that Christians through the centuries have commonly looked upon as inspired by God. It's His Word to us. So consequently, we need to pay heed to what He's written. It is both a word of admonition, it's a word of instruction. We saw in chapter 1, and really throughout the epistle, it's, it's doctrinal, it teaches us things, but it's also words of encouragement. Words of encouragement to hold fast, cling to what God's given you. But it's more than just holding fast, it's also words to move on. Don't just stand still with what you have, but we're to move on in our Christian life and our walk with the Lord in maturity and godliness, holiness, and so forth. And so as Peter continues with his word in verse 11 and through verse 17, we want to try to look at that passage this morning. We've seen that these words that he's given us uh, are really, it's like a... I guess you'd say it's, it's more than a baked potato. It's loaded. You ever have a loaded baked potato? They put all that good stuff on it. Well, God's Word is loaded. There is so much just in what we have looked at so far concerning our inheritance, concerning the hope that is laid up before us, 
concerning this living and abiding Word of God, concerning the structure that God is building out of living stones with a living Christ, a living Messiah as being the chief cornerstone of that building, of us being a holy nation and a royal priesthood, a kingly priesthood, And what God has done for us in moving us from darkness to light. And Paul tells us in Colossians chapter 1 verse 13 that he, he has translated us from darkness into the kingdom of his dear son. And that word translate, it means to you know, be in one place. And to translate you, to actually move you over to another place. From where you were to now in a wholly new locale. A whole new sphere of operation. Because of that, we are now to change our lives. We are to move in a whole different sphere. Matthew chapter 13 in the parables of the kingdom. He says, the kingdom of heaven is like unto. And he tells us, he forecasts what the kingdom of the heavens is going to be like through the the remainder of the age till the Lord returns. And he tells us something there about leaven being put into three measures of meal. And there it would remain until the whole was leavened. So there's an operative force going on today. And the implication of that leaven is it's, it's negative. It's not a positive thing. It's going downhill. Leaven, of course, in bread that you and I, most of us eat day to day, we, we, we look upon that as a positive good thing. But in Scripture, leaven, about 99% of the time, is spoken of in a negative content, context. And so in the midst of all of this negativity, Peter is encouraging us, exhorting us to live within a certain manner, with a certain type of conduct. And so as he laid the foundation here for this building, this royal priesthood, this chosen generation, this peculiar people or this people who are God's own possession, he then says, dearly beloved. Now, if I were one of those uh, ministers who stood up here each Sunday with a robe on, and as I come to the pulpit and I said, Dearly beloved, you know, you would probably cringe. I hope you would. <laughs> that's, not the, that's not what Peter's, that's not how he's expressing it here. He's saying it, Dearly beloved, in the sense that those who are loved by God, you loved ones of God, dearly beloved of God. So they are to know that. And and, and in the midst of them uh, as being strangers and pilgrims, as he's already addressed them, and we saw that back in in chapter 1, verse 1, that they are strangers and pilgrims living in a land that they call not their home, it's not their own, in view of all the trials, in view of the the griefs, the disturbances, the testings they were going through, 
Peter wanted them to know they were beloved of God. God's chosen. They were Remember, they were elect. Chosen to do this. Chosen to experience these things. But God wants them to know they are beloved. They belong to Him. Now, he's repeating something we've already looked at. He says, I beseech you, I urge you, I implore you, uh, I call upon you, he says, as strangers and pilgrims. Now, we, 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 we took note of the fact that <clears throat> a stranger was one who settles down alongside of. It uses the word home or a house and then to dwell alongside of someone else. And then we saw that the word, uh, the word pilgrim doesn't mean the idea of, you know, temporary or passing through, although that is implied, but it's the idea of they settle down alongside that person. So here they are in a strange land, having settled down there, having begun to live their lives, to be a part of the community in which they live, in this foreign land. Both foreign in the sense that probably they were not <coughs> citizens, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> they were not citizens of the land they were living in, but even further, they were not citizens of this earth. They had a heavenly citizenship. And so they were to view themselves in the land and where they were living as being temporary quarters. And the people amongst whom they lived, <clears throat> whether they were genuinely strangers or whether they were native to that land, they were not to view them as people of their own. They were strangers. Now you think about that, the implications that that, that that has for you and I as people who have been set apart, <clears throat> chosen by God, and the neighbors around us who do not believe in God, who do not observe his word, who do not trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, we are to view them as strangers. They may be a good neighbor, but they're strangers. So consequently then, the believer then as Peter expresses it here in his word, who has set his hope on the inheritance that's reserved in heaven. And this Christian who is, is enduring through all kinds of trials and testings that comes into his life that ultimately results in the saving of their soul. This Christian who hopes to the end for the grace that is going to be brought to them at the unveiling of Jesus Christ. This Christian who abides in the living word of God, who, as Peter admonished us in verse 1 of chapter 2, to put off and lay aside all these things, evil speakings and malice and so on, that was characteristic of their neighbors, this one, he says, are to abstain. From fleshly lusts. In view of what God has laid out before us here through the pen of Peter, 
We're to abstain from fleshly lusts, he says, which war against the soul. In other words, there's a battle going on. There is something out there in this evil world as that leaven is working its way through to the end of the age that is seeking to bring defeat and that is seeking to overcome us rather than allowing us to overcome. But there is a method. There is a way which God has provided for us to overcome and to be overcomers. And one of these ways here, he says, is to abstain from fleshly lust. So I don't, you know, I don't know how much, I don't know how to impress upon us the strength of this word. I beseech you, I urge you, I implore you, I'm appealing to you, to you who are strangers and pilgrims, to you who view yourselves this morning as just a temporary resident living amongst neighbors who are not of my association, who are not of my kindred, or as we'll find out later on, not of my brotherhood, he says, abstain. Put it off from you. Remain far from fleshly lust. Now that word lust, as you've probably heard a thousand times and more, is neither a good word nor a bad word. It just means strong desires. The strong desires and urgings of the flesh. However, you need to know that in the Bible, most of the time, it's used in a negative sense. It's used in the sense of things that work harm to us, which want to destroy us or ruin us. And of course, that's why Peter's admonishing us to abstain from these things to hold off, to put it away from us. And of course, that word abstain there, it's in a continuous tense. The idea is continue to do it. It ought to be an ongoing thing. As a matter of fact, it must be an ongoing thing in our lives because it's a continuous war. It is a constant war. It's one of those principles that I use, and I've used it before here, that um, <clears throat> it's like electricity and light. You know, <clears throat> darkness is something that is after us all the time. It's, it's like it's pushing on us. It's going after you. And the only way you get rid of darkness is to have an outside source of power to bring light into this room. But if we were to flip the switch... To cut the power off, you know something? There is no switch that you have to turn on to bring the darkness, do we? It comes automatically. It is automatically there. So the point is, is that any time we drop our guard, any time we fail to walk in the Spirit... The lusts of the flesh are right there, just like darkness, automatically to take over. And if you stop abstaining, if you stop resisting or holding back from the lusts of the flesh, from these fleshly desires that come over us, then that's exactly what they will do. They will come over you, and they will overtake you. Look 
let's uh, turn back just a little bit to James chapter 4. In James chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, he uses this metaphor of a war in the same sense that Peter uses it. He says, From whence come wars and fightings among you? Come they not hence even of your lusts that war in your members? You see, the lusts are warring in us, always seeking to take us over, to dominate us, to be the, the most predominant thing in our lives. He says there you in verse 2, You lust and you have not. You kill and desire to have and cannot obtain. You fight in war, yet you have not because you ask not. And then he says in verse 3, When you do ask, the reason you're becoming you are being overcome by your lust is because you ask amiss. You do not ask properly. So this war that's going on in our souls is for the domination of our soul. It's to overcome the soul. And the soul, as the seat of our life, of our mind, our intellect, our emotions, our feelings and our will, the choices we make in life, the things that we do, the fleshly lust will overcome those things. It will bring them to ruin. Now you might wonder, you know, how bad is it to lust after a good cold piece of watermelon on a hot day? Well, you see, there are the good things in life. There are the pleasures that God brings our way. The joys that He allows us to partake of in a righteous and a godly manner. But there are those lusts that will ruin us. Turn with me back a little farther now to uh, the book of Galatians. And let's look at Galatians chapter 5. Now Paul is bringing forth the argument to us concerning the spirit and the law, or grace and law. He tells us that we're not under law, but we're under grace. He has already told the Galatian believers that they are no longer uh, under a schoolmaster. And the law was being compared to a schoolmaster in the same sense that a, a, a child is under a tutor. And he is being tutored and taught until a specific day when the father releases him from that. From that point on, he is expected to walk according to the principles and conduct in which the tutor instructed him. But he's not going to have to answer to the tutor anymore. He's considered an adult. He is considered a genuine son. And a son, in that sense, is no longer bound by the dictates of the tutor. He is expected to act and conduct as a mature adult, a mature son. So it is with the law. We are now out from under or not held by or bound by the dictates of the law. How are we supposed to walk then as a mature son? According to the Spirit. To be led by the Spirit. As a matter of fact, Paul tells us over in Romans chapter 8. I'm just going to turn over there. Let's re I want to read that. Because it's, it's the same kind of idea. 
Hold your finger there in Galatians 5. We're going to come back and look at Romans chapter 8. Because he establishes the principle here first. In Romans 8 verse 14, he says, For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. So you see these words of limitation that are applied to the Christian, as many as, that cuts the number down. It is not the whole body of Christians. It is not every person who believes on the Lord Jesus Christ is a son of God. The limitation is to those who are led by the Spirit. Now, if you will turn back over to Galatians chapter 5. In consideration of that then, look at verse 13. Paul says there, For brethren, you have been called unto liberty, to freedom. Freedom to do anything you want to do. No, not freedom to do anything you want to do. You are not to use liberty as an occasion to the flesh. That's not the purpose of liberty. The liberty, the purpose of liberty is freedom to serve Christ, to be submitted to the law of Jesus Christ. So he says, only use not liberty for an occasion to the flesh, but by love serve one another. As a slave, by love, be a slave one to another. For all the law is fulfilled in one word, even in this. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Well, if you remember, that's one of the, the, the second greatest commandment, Jesus said, in all the law. The first was to love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy mind. And he said the second is like it. It's to love your neighbor as yourself. So, vertically, loving God, horizontally, loving your neighbor, these two actions govern all the law and the prophets, Paul said, or Jesus said. He said, that, matter of fact, all the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments right here. So, this is the predominant principle that is to govern our life as a Christian. Loving God. Loving our neighbor. If you, we will abide by those principles, you see, the law has no effect then. And by the way, that principle, you remember, these, these came from the Old Testament. These quotations, I'm not going to take the time to look them up today, but at a later date, we're going to do that. But what I'm saying here is that these two principles were dominant in the Old Testament, just like they are dominant for you and I. Men of God were expected to walk according to the Spirit, even in the Old Testament. They were to be, as it were, above the law. Not above the law in the sense that we would think of a politician being above the law, but they were above the law in that one who was walking according to the Spirit and one who was loving his neighbor and God was not bound by the dictates of the law. That's why... That's why when an when a, when a Old Testament uh, Jew would, uh, would come to God with his sacrifices and offerings and his heart was not in it, God told him, you know, they're just a stench in my nostrils. No, they were being obedient. They were doing what the letter of the law dictated, 
but their heart was not in it. They were not doing it by the Spirit. And so Paul's admonition to us here is to do these things. We're to walk according to the dictates of the Spirit. We are free from the dictates of the law. So he says in verse 14, for all the law is fulfilled in this one word. Well, in verse 15, he says, but if you bite and devour one another, well, that's not loving your neighbor. But if you bite and devour one another, take heed that ye not be consumed one of another. So this I say then, walk in the spirit and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. The flesh lusts against the spirit, the spirit against the flesh. That's the war that James was talking about. That's the war in the soul that Peter was talking about. Spirit and flesh lusting against each other. But you know what? You may be sitting there thinking, well, I don't really know that I've really experienced that war. I'm not just sure that, you know, each day I seem to be going along pretty good and it doesn't seem to be a battle for me. Well, if you're not experienced walking in the Spirit then you're certainly not going to know what the war is all about. It takes submission to God's Spirit. It takes being filled with His Spirit to know what this war is about, what the enemy is trying to do to the soul and what walking in the flesh will do to us and the ruin it will bring. And that's what Paul's telling us here in verse, verses, uh, verse 17 on. He says, the flesh, the flesh lusts against the spirit, the spirit against the flesh, and these are contrary the one to another. He says, so that you cannot do the things that you would. It prevents you. It hinders you. Consequently, you cannot have the victory. And you're not being an overcomer. But then in verse 18, he says, but if you be led of the spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh, he says, are these manifest. Adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lasciviousness, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, variance, heresies, envyings, murders, drunkenness, revelings, and such like. Now he talks about these things plenty throughout the scripture, not just in this passage here. But do you remember back in the Sermon on the Mount? He said, if you look on someone to lust after them in your heart, you've committed adultery. You murder someone in your heart, you're just as guilty as the guy that goes out there and shoots somebody or puts a knife in them and kills them physically. You see, these are the things that we have to deal with on the level of the spirit and the war that's going on in our soul over the flesh and the spirit. But you know what happens. He says, you do these things here. He says, as I have also told you in time past, that they which do these things, such things, shall not inherit the kingdom of God. You see, obtaining that inheritance that Peter is talking about, and the war, he says, is going on in our soul, Paul says, we obtain if we're sure to walk in the Spirit. But if you fail to do so, you fail to walk in the Spirit, and you do give in to the lust of your flesh, then we're not going to receive the inheritance. We will not come into possession of it. 
And so that's why it becomes such an important thing here to us. So when Peter talks about warring in the soul, he's talking about something that is vital to us, something that's vital concerning the life to come, something that ought to be of the utmost importance to us if we're actually looking forward to the revealing of Jesus Christ, to his second coming and the judgment seat of Christ and his victory over the nations of this earth and all those who who rise up against God and then the ultimate rule of his son over the earth and our future participation with him in that rule. If that is a hope that we cling to and desire to be a part of, then abstaining from fleshly lusts is an important thing. Now, he moves on to tell us how abstaining from fleshly lusts on the positive side will manifest itself in our life as a Christian. And he tells us the first thing, he says in verse 12, having your conversation honest among the Gentiles or amongst the pagans. In other words, amongst those whom you are a stranger and a pilgrim, you will have your way of life, your conduct and your behavior will be honest amongst them. It'll it'll be noble. It'll be very becoming to them or honorable. It will be a life that will manifest itself or stick out, if you will, amongst those around you. And the contrast is, is that whereas they speak evil against you, he says, they may by your good works, which they shall behold or lay eyes upon. And that word behold means to look intently at, to gaze at, to look over with intensity as they view your life. He says, in the day of visitation, or the day of inspection, the day of judgment, they would glorify God. Now that's a kind of a difficult statement, what he's saying there. A little puzzling. But ultimately it seems that by viewing our lives, by the good conduct, good behavior, that they see in us, they will ultimately come to know the Lord. Now, I suppose we could take, and by the way, there is some support for that over here in chapter 3 and verses 1 and 2. So let's just look ahead just a little bit to where Peter's going. He says in verse 1, Likewise, you wives, be in subjection to your own husbands, that if any obey not the word, they also may, without the word, be won by the conversation of the wives, by the behavior, the conduct of the wives, while they do what? Same word, behold, while the husband looks with long intensity, examines your life, he says, coupled with fear, your chaste conversation, your chaste way of living, coupled with fear. The husband could be one. Brought back to the Lord. And it all has to do with beholding. Looking intently upon 
our way of life, how we live. But the other way to look at this phrase here is they glorify God in the day of visitation. Now, this day of visitation, the connotations here are the, is the day of judgment, the day when God comes to inspect, to judge, to look over. And the suggestion would be then in that day, they're going to be forced as it will to glorify God in that day. These who have been in opposition to you, those who have been in opposition to the ones seeking to look forward to the coming of the Lord and obtain the future inheritance, who have held fast to the faith that they might obtain that which God has for them at His return. And of course we know from the book of Philippians Chapter 2, he says there, there is a coming a day when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. These here, he says, will glorify God in the day of visitation. So we could take that. I'm not sure how to take that one way or the other. I tend to lean to the first one I gave you. And the reason being is because this whole idea of day of visitation carries with it the not just the idea of judgment, but the coming of God's mercy as well. That God will show mercy in that day. And of course we know from James, in James chapter 2, uh, mercy and judgment are two things that are brought out when God comes to bring His people to judgment. It's not just judgment and the negative side that will occur there. Mercy also occurs there. To the, to the, oh, by the way, only to those, though, that have shown mercy. Mercy, he says, triumphs over judgment. So, in view of these things, in view of the fact that they are watching, he says, submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether it be to the king as supreme or unto governors as unto them uh, that are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and for the praise of them that do well. Wow. You see, this has to do with our conduct in our communities, in our counties, in our state, in our society, under the government that God has given us. And by the way, the article is not there in the Greek when it says, as unto the king, it's as unto king, as unto governors. And the implication from that is, is that it's whatever form of government you live under. If you have the joy and privilege of living under a democracy, if you're under a dictatorship, if you're under communism, if you're under an anarchy, whatever it might be, you're to abide by this principle. You are to abide by this submitting yourselves to the ordinances of men, to these social institutions of man. To every creation of man is what it literally says there. Whatever, in other words, under government, whatever, God, whatever they come up with, and the source, by the way, it means the source is in man, not in God. Though God ordains the government, whatever source they come up with, then we're to abide by that. We're to submit ourselves unto that. 
And he reminds us there then concerning these governors, he says, as unto them that are sent by him, by the Lord, or maybe by the king. They view that both ways as well. I think he means by the king. You see, these governors are under the king, and they are sent by him with a specific purpose. And he's telling us what the principal purpose of government it is. And it has a positive and a negative side. It's for the punishment of evildoers, and it's for the praise of them that do well, who live honorably under whatever type of governmental system that we come under in this life, in this world, whatever nation we are born in, we are to abide by this same principle. Submit, Paul says, to the higher authorities. We are to live under them in an honorable way. They're they're not our king. They are not our governors. They are foreign to us. And yet he says we are to submit to them. Why? Because, remember, they're foreign because he says you're strangers. You're pilgrims in this land. And it's not your home. So consequently, for so is the will of God that with well-doing you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men, untaught men, ignorance, unknowing. That's how, that's how God views, that's how he's telling us we should view those who live around us, who do not abide by the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, who do not believe in the gospel that he's given us, this good news that he's speaking of, this word that he spoke of back in chapter 1, this living word that he has brought to us, who do not consider it as a thing to be held to or clung to. As a matter of fact, they look upon us uh, as being ignorant and foolish. God says they're the ignorant and foolish ones. And so, in doing that, in living our life out in such a manner that these who look upon us would come to realize, ultimately, that the life that we are living is one which brings honor to God and which He will ultimately one day approve of. He says here, for us... We are to live under this system as free, with liberty, with the understanding of freedom and not using your liberty for a cloak of maliciousness, but as the servants of God, as the slaves of God. So though we are bound by the government under which we live, we're to realize that in actuality, we're free people. We are free to serve God when we live and conduct our life in this kind of manner, no matter what kind of government, no matter how repressive it may be, we have the freedom to serve Him. Freedom to serve Him in a manner that is acceptable to Him, that is pleasing to Him, that brings honor to Him. So consequently, in verse 17, he sums this all up with four little epithets here, as it were. Pithy, to the point, 
honor all men. Of course, you'll see the word men is in italics. It's honor all. But the word all is masculine. So I think honor all men or all of mankind gets the idea across to us. We're to have respect to and honor everyone. And then we're to love the brotherhood. The brotherhood in the sense of a society of people who believe God's word. Now, some want to tie this in and say, well, Peter's, you know, Peter, by the way, doesn't mention the word church in, in his entire epistle. And some want to say, well, this is Peter's way of expressing the church. But I think it's more than that. Because in the context here, he's talking about the ones who are actually doing what he's saying. The ones who are actually believing the things that he has given us here. Love the brotherhood. And to fear God. And to honor the king. Well, you almost think Peter's being disrespectful there, don't you? Wouldn't you say, think he would have said, honor the king and then fear God last? And give God the prominent place there? But the whole context, you see, is not the fear of God, although that's included. But the context has to do with our fear of God in view of how we live in the society around us. How we live under the present government that we have. Whether it's the one that we had a hundred years ago and everybody says, Oh, how I long for the good old days. Or what we had in the 1950s. As opposed to where we've come with, with all that went on in the 1960s and 70s and so on since then. And how deplorable that may be. Whatever the outcome is, under that government, whatever it is, he's saying, you're to submit yourself to it. And you can live in such a manner that these lusts which war about in your soul and work against you in every possible way that you can overcome them. That you can be victorious in the inner man, in the inner life. Hey, we can make it look pretty good on the outside. And we can make the outer life look good, even to a fellow Christian. But you see, in, in the day of judgment, God's going to expect the heart. He is going to look our heart over to see where we are and what we truly have been. And it will be exposed. And then he says, we, we will, you know, then we're going to know. That's the day we're going to truly know. But see, it's, it's not like you don't know now. It's not like, oh man, whew, I hope when I get there, I don't find out all along that I've been fooled and I thought I was doing good and then I find out that I wasn't. It's not that at all. You know right now. You know where you are right now. It's not going to come as a surprise to you. He's simply saying it will be exposed. It will be known in the day of visitation. It will be brought out public. That's when it will be known. Manifested. He says, I think it is in 1 Corinthians 3. It's going to be revealed by fire. He says there. 
So it becomes incumbent upon us. It's important then for us to understand the power that is in the living Word of God. That if we submit to and obey His Word, if we walk according to the Spirit, or as Paul expresses it in Philippians chapter 3, to walk or to know or to experience the power of His resurrection. Because you see, it is living and walking in an abiding faith in God's Word that allows you to walk in the power of His resurrection. It is believing that what God says He will do and then operating in obedience to that Word in our daily life that enables you to walk in the power of His resurrection. That enables you to be led every day by His Spirit. That's why the writer of Hebrews, as we, were, we have been and still are studying on Wednesday nights, he admonishes us to continue in the faith. Because if you continue in the faith, he says, unto the end. And then as he says in chapter 11, these all died in faith. You see, if you live in faith, if you walk in faith, if you walk in the Spirit, if you walk in the power of the resurrection of Christ, unto the end then you're victorious. Then you're an overcomer. Then you can stand before the Lord Jesus Christ at His judgment seat with confidence, with boldness, with no fear, knowing that He's going to be well pleased with you. Peter knew God was going to be pleased with him. He tells us over in, uh, right here in this same epistle in chapter 5, he says, um, he says in verse 1, The elders which are among you I exhort, who am also an elder, and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, and also a partaker of the glory that shall be revealed. Peter knew, just like Paul knew. Peter knew he was going to be a partaker of the glory that shall be revealed. God, God, the Lord told him back in Matthew 19, he said, uh, all you have, when Peter, and by the way, Peter was the one that asked the question, Lord, we've given up everything to follow you. What are we going to have? And he says, you that have followed me in the regeneration shall sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. So the Lord told Peter, here's what was going to be. Here's how, it was, here's how it's going to end up. You who have followed me. Well, Peter, in writing this epistle, was able to say at this point, I followed him. And I am going to be a partaker, a sharer in the glory that shall be revealed. We know we can have the same kind of confidence. That's why, that's why all these words are written here by Peter. He wants us to have the same kind of confidence. The same kind of assurance that he's going to do for us just what he's going to do for Peter. And we can look forward to that day to share in the future glory of Jesus Christ over this earth. And I trust that's your hope and your joy today too. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the joy that you give us, the confidence, the assurance that comes to us through your word and through the ministry of your Holy Spirit. I pray, God, that we would know and understand the confidence that's ours if we but boldly seek you out, if we but uh, submit ourselves unto your authority, your lordship, and be willing to do the things you've called us to do. 
Lord, we know that in many ways we stumble. We have the, the, the promise of the Lord Jesus Christ, the promise of claiming his blood each day to walk in a manner that's well-pleasing unto you. And I pray that we would determine to do that very thing. In Jesus' name we pray. We want to give you the opportunity to come today if that's your heart's desire or God has spoken to you in some way and you feel a burden for that, uh, whatever the need might be, or if you want to unite with our fellowship in some manner, you don't need to be baptized, please come and let us know. Brother Bob.